Okay, Alan. Good to see you again. I remember that you told me that uh, uh, there was a sutta called One by One as They Occur, or One by One is actually what the actual sutta is. Um, and that part about as they occur is an important point also. Uh, this is sutta number 111 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, and that it has some extraordinarily important stuff in it that most students, uh, when they read it, they'll, they'll slough right over it. <laughs> and so uh, it's very good for us uh, to, uh, to go back and pay attention to this uh, so that we can get some value out of it. Wonderful. Basically, this is a sutta that is the Buddha talking about um, Sariputta. Now, Sariputta uh, was a very early student of the Buddha. And that uh, Sariputta and Mahamagala were already out uh, in the spiritual world practicing possibly very much like uh, the Buddha was. And so they ran across the Buddha and became his students. Uh, and so that's an important point that they were already out there. He wasn't just a householder that ran across the, uh, the Buddha, that he was actually out there practicing. Now, uh, it says, starting off, sir, um, uh, the Buddha addressed him, Venerable Sirs, Sariputta is astute, because he has great wisdom, widespread wisdom, laughing wisdom, sharp wisdom, penetrating wisdom. All right, so uh, let's look at that, that wisdom there in the sense of the laughing wisdom, because there are some people who think that uh, uh, Arahats uh, and people who have the Dhamma don't laugh. And there is, in fact, a rule about it, but that has to do with laughing in public places, such as in the courtroom, where it would not be appropriate for anyone to laugh. But that does not mean that there's a, uh, that the public places are just, you know, out in the water or around or uh, on the Internet called something like that, that uh, laughter is a part of the, uh, the process. Uh, and so this is how Sariputta uh, is being described as one who is laughing and swift and sharp and penetrating. So this would be kind of uh, the way of, of looking at uh, the outcome of what the practice is, that people put labels, arahat, all of that kind of stuff. But the Buddha really does, the word Buddha means to wake up, which means to apply wisdom. Okay. And now the next sentence, it says, for a fortnight, he practiced discernment of phenomenons one by one as they occur. And this is how he did it. Okay. You know what a fortnight is? That's two weeks. Mm -hmm. It's not 20 years of deep meditation. <laughs> this takes only a couple of weeks for good students. It's mm -hmm. not that big a deal if it's done correctly. 
Alright, so the next one, which is now actually going right into it. The first two words are the most important words of this sutta. Quite secluded. Quite secluded. Quite secluded from an, uh, from, uh, it's actually translated as sensual pleasures. Uh, but basically what we're talking about is greed, ill will, and the other hindrances. Okay. Secluded from all unskillful qualities. He entered and remained in the first jhana. Okay. That means that our seclusion is a key ingredient into going into first jhana, including the key ingredient of not just being secluded from the world, but being secluded from all mental unwholesome qualities. Mm -hmm. This is completely different than the noting method because the noting method starts with noting, not with cleaning house. That's an important point that you'll see, okay? He entered and remained in the first jhana, which has pity and sukha born of this seclusion from the hindrances while placing the mind and keeping it connected and he distinguishes phenomena in the first jhana one by one and then you see that colon so basically this statement is saying this is what he is going to be observing one by one placing and keeping those two things are uh, uh, in the Pali is Vicha and Vitaka, which has to do with being able to apply the mind and keep it on something. Basically, what we're saying here is, is that Sariputta is practicing now right noble view in the sense of the investigation. And what he is investigating is his own state of mind. Can I keep my mind focused and can I keep it sustained on something? <laughs> the next one by one is he's going to say rapture and bliss, which means those are the jhana factors. So the first thing we do in the first jhana is review the first jhana. <laughs> okay, that's what we're doing with the first jhana is, is that we're making sure we've got the, uh, the rapture, this uh, bliss, uh, and the placing of the mind. And the next one he talks about as and unification of mind. This is one of the places where the Buddha actually does specify that the unification of mind that is the object of the Eightfold Noble Path and is often put as the last item of Sama Arya Samati actually is a state of first jhana where the mind is unified and it's unified because it is placed and kept and it is free from the hindrances. The next things you see on there is, oh my goodness, now we go right into Paticca Samupada. We have Pasa, contact, Vedana, feeling, Nama Rupa Asanya as perception, intention, that's an interesting one that we can talk about in a moment. The mind itself, enthusiasm, decision, 
energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. Okay, now we see decision, energy, mindfulness. Those are actually not just items on the Eightfold Noble Path, but they are also part of the Sambo Jhana, the seven factors of enlightenment. Mm This is really an important little statement here. Notice in this first jhana that the things to be noted are I go in fall into two general classifications: the reality of how the mind works and wholesome things. Wholesomeness, like unification of mind, wholesome things like rapture and bliss and placing and keeping the things. And then the things that just are is like what's in particular Samopada, contact, feeling, perception. So all what we're talking about here is, is that the right way for a student to observe Katichu Samopada in his own mind is when he is already free from the hindrances and mm-hmm. is in first jhana. And when we we're in first jhana, we can actually see this stuff happening inside our mind and we can pin it down to oh this is actually how contact operates this is feeling this is perception in fact i think that the word intention here could possibly be uh, uh another word for salayatana that which strikes us the internal thing that gets us okay so we could go along with that And some of these words are kind of strange because of the translator. But basically what we can say here is is that there are only wholesome things that are to be observed or noted one by one, not unwholesome things. For instance, in particular Samupada, the whole last six items on the list are missing. We have only uh, 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 early items, and those early items are also associated with the five aggregates. In fact, except for the body, which you can see the body in uh, the rapture um, and the bliss. But then you can see um, with the body, you have the feelings, perception, consciousness, uh, I don't see the Sankara in there because the Sankara would not be, in fact, in play at this time because we're not thinking about just anything. We're actually applying the mind to this present moment. So what I'm really getting at then is is that with, with uh, wisdom, at this point of contact, the feelings that are arise are going to be wise feelings which means now you're not going to have on this list of grasping, clinging, bhava, or the uh, creation of the self, nor dukkha. Those five items are not here. This is another way of looking at that this is not the Mahasi method. It's not the Mahasi method for a number of reasons. One is, is the Mahasi method talks about access concentration and doing Vipassana before you enter the jhanas. 
If that's the case, then of course there are going to be things that could be noted that are not part of the first jhana. What are the things that could be noticed that are not of the first jhana would be hindrances, and the hindrances is what gives rise then to the dukkha. Mm -hmm. All right? And so you can see then that what, what will happen with people is that uh, because they're practicing some form of meditation and not removing the hindrances from the mind, that those hindrances will um, go along in their practice. That in fact, if they get really, really sharp and really, really noting what's going on, they're going to be noting more and more dukkha. The more dukkha they get, the more they note, the deeper they go into the dukkha that's just there on the surface or just kind of piddling for the ordinary person. Now the Mahasi practitioner is going deep into the Dhamma. He's not dealing with, uh, let us say, uh, household garbage. He's in the garbage pit. And so here we are in the garbage pit sorting our garbage out. That's a bottle goes into the bottle bin. That's a piece of paper goes in the paper bin. That's a can it goes into the can pit. But the problem is, is that while we're doing all of that sorting out, we're still completely surrounded by garbage. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is where uh, the real practice of the Buddha starts is that we've got to get out of the garbage before we start noting. Mm -hmm. So that we're only going to be noting wholesome things, not unwholesome things. So when we're noting and seeing unwholesome things or hindrances, the right thing to do is to remove them immediately and then note that they're gone. <laughs> okay. So moving down just a little bit, here's where the thing really begins to make sense according to the Mahasi method. He knew these phenomena as they arose, as they remained, and as they went away. This is where we get the one by one as they occur, is in this statement. He knows these phenomena as they arose, or as they arise, as things come up. One by one as they occur, they will remain for a short time, and then uh, because of our attention or something, um, these things will pass away. That in fact, perception is not perception all the time. Perception is almost like, um, let us say, uh, for some strange reason, the analogy is, uh, uh, is a gas um, cigarette lighter, a butane with a spioelectric. Once you push the button down, there is a spark. And that spark would then be the perception that takes that item that we saw and makes sense out of it. Okay? But this is right. Exactly. There was a spark in there. That spark actually sets that fire, and the fire is the contact and the feelings. But your lighter is not sparking all the time which means that these things come and go and come and go and come and go. And they come when, they're, when we're looking at them mostly, 
and then they will flitter away. So he understood. So it seems that this phenomena, not having been, comes to be, and having comes to be, they flitter away. Mm -hmm. All right. Here, we're actually talking about now Anapanasati Sutta, step number 13, 14, and 15. What is that? Is that everything is temporary. These arise, these uh, phenomena, they arise, they remain, and they pass away. But in this case, it's almost always, or in fact, it is always wholesome things, not unwholesome things that we see, but even the wholesome things arise, remain a short time, and then flitter away. Everything flitters away. The mind is that fast. That thing, in fact, the mind is so fast that sometimes it's hard to see things as they're happening. We can only reflect upon it after it's occurred, after it's gone. We'll talk about that in, in a minute. Okay. So, reading on, <clears throat> and he meditated without attraction or repulsion for any of these phenomena, independent United, liberated, detached, his mind is free from limits, and he understood there is an escape beyond. And by repeated practice, he knew for sure there is. Well, this is also, again, here the Buddha's statement of what I've said to students very, very often is in the sense that once you begin to do this over and over again, confidence will arise, and then we know for sure that there is an escape. We know we can, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, we can, in fact, clean it out and come back to this state here. This is a really important point, that it has to do with confidence. Confidence in two respects. One, confidence that there is an escape, and the number two kind of confidence, and I know that it's there. I know for sure that that escape exists, which means that for sure it exists, means that it's possible for me. Okay? This is actually... uh, The whole sutta right here, we could stop at this point, but it is worth noting that um, as a student progresses, that the mind, once it has all of these jhana factors, then we eliminate these jhana factors one by one as we go higher into the jhanas. And in all cases, there is never a time or a place where the hindrances come back in. So there's no room for uh, fear, disgust, misery in this practice. All of the fear, disgust, um, misery, uh, uh, and the desire for escape was accomplished in this sutta in those first two words that I talked about quite secluded, 
quite secluded from fearfulness, quite secluded from misery, quite secluded from disgust, quite secluded from the desire for escape. Why? Well, if you look at that, that he understood there is an escape, and he knows for sure there's an escape, that kind of confidence will actually mollify, if not destroy, the desire for escape. Desire for escape is like we're lost and we really, really need to get out of it. So this is basically talking about once we see the light at the end of the tunnel, that's quite a relief. <laughs> that's really a relief. That's an important part that this is great relief that we have here because we can see the end of it. One of the ways that I describe the first jhana to some students is imagine that the jhanas is like a violin with four strings. In order to get the first string to play a note on the violin, that's a violin note, you need the violin first. You need to construct the violin. You need the body and you need the, uh, 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 the thing put together correctly with the, uh, uh, with the neck and the neural and the bridge and at least one string. Once we get that whole violin going, then we can add one more string, one more string, one more string fairly easily mm. once we've got the violin. So once we've got the jhana itself with the factors of jhana, then the higher jhanas are easily enough. I'm, I'm curious what you think about um, the distinction between what some people call tranquility jhanas and uh, vipassana jhanas. Do you see that as a useful distinction? Actually, I would say that it's a false distinction that did not exist at all in the earlier uh, suttas. But by the time the Anguttara Nikaya came by, I can show you five suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya that, uh, that refute that. And how they refute it is that if you have Vipassana and you don't have Samatha, then your job is to train in Samatha. If you have Samatha and you don't have uh, uh Vipassana, then your job is to train in Vipassana. If you do not have either Vipassana or Samatha, then your job is to train in both of them together. That's one of the suttas. And there's a bunch of suttas that talk about the fact that there is no separation between them, in the sense that if you think about Samatha uh, uh, or tranquility, is the tranquility of this first jhana, or let us, I like the word ease, easy, mm. at ease, at rest, okay, rather than tranquility, because the word tranquility is pifalutin, and it also reminds some people of dart guns, and big animals like a lion laying over being completely passed out, that's tranquilized, mm. okay, not tamed. There's a difference between tamed and tranquilized. 
Okay, so we're talking about, uh, when we're talking about uh, the tranquility meditation, we're actually talking about it as the mind is tamed. It's not wild. It's not barking at, it, at things. It can sit down and rest. So that dichotomy of Vipassana versus um, uh, Samatha is actually quite false. So... Uh I guess that uh, it comes about from sour grapes. Do you know what uh, um, the, the story of sour grapes is an Aesop fable where the, uh, the fox is jumping for the grapes. Yeah. And when he can't get them, he walks away in disgust, but not in disgust that I'm a failure. It's that, oh, the grapes must have been sour. <laughs> okay. And so because these grapes are sour, Samatha, therefore uh, I'm going to accept second best, which is Vipassana. And that uh, they talk about Vipassana in the sense of uh, doing it in what is called axis concentration, which is actually before jhana. And anything that's before jhana is not going to have all the jhana factors, and probably access concentration is going to have hindrances already in it. Neighborhood concentration, they sometimes call it, or access concentration, which means that you can now fairly easy throw these hindrances out. But if your Mahasi method is to note, then we're even in access concentration, unlikely to just make the natural step into first jhana, but rather sit there in access concentration, noting the junk one by one as they occur. Now, one of the qualities of this quite secluded from uh, uh, unskillful qualities, the Buddha talks about this quite a lot in a sutta number 19, the name of it is Two Kinds of Thoughts, that has the story of the cowherd. The cowherd is taking his cows, a few of them, uh, out to, to graze. But he's got to pass through um, an area that's dangerous because there's people there, there's shops, there's uh, food stalls and whatnot. And so he takes a stick with him to whack the cows to keep them in line so that they will in fact continue along the path and not stray uh, onto stepping on a child or, or taking food off of a stall or whatnot. Now, in that uh, analogy, most people are in the state that their little herd of cows is all over the village doing damage. And you've got to get them all together. Okay, so once the cow herd has the cows uh, in line, which actually is the analogy of having only wholesome thoughts, one wholesome thought after another after another, we've got our little herd of thoughts in line. Once we get the thoughts in line and, and head off to uh, the pasture, once the cow herd gets the cows to the pasture, now <clears throat> they're all in a wholesome state. They've got their heads down, they're grazing. The cowherd doesn't have to stand there with a stick anymore. In fact, he can go sit down under a tree. Buddha actually talks about it like that. Mm -hmm. So that 
now the cow herd has a whole lot less work to do. We're moving in the direction of, in fact, he's sitting down under a tree rather than whacking cows to keep them in line. That's a lot of tranquility there, isn't it? <laughs> All right. So he's taking it easy. And then the Buddha talks about it in the sense that once we have the thoughts lined up one by one as they happen, it's wholesome thoughts. That's the placing and the keeping of the mind that is the first jhana. Only wholesome thoughts, one wholesome thought after another. And if those wholesome, those wholesome thoughts are really wholesome, they are going to bring on satisfaction, safety, security. And that's what uh, this translator using the word bliss here. Actually, he's translating the word sukha. And sukha means um, the, basically the opposite of dukkha. The dukkha comes from having unwholesome, unskillful thoughts. Uh, sukha comes from having only wholesome, skillful thoughts. Like, wow, isn't this nice? Mm. Well, I can do this. Those are the things that we uh, uh, work with. So once we get the mind to where we have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, now we can begin to put gaps in there. So they'll have a wholesome thought and a gap. And another wholesome thought and perhaps now a longer gap. The way that that can be practiced in Anapanasati is to get the mind so wholesome that we only have a few words left. But in fact, as we're gathering the mind together, placing and keeping and placing and keeping, it gets to a very, very small little tight group of thoughts. Sometimes monks will uh, chant a small chant over and over and over again, just keeping the mind wholesome, keeping it in uh, placing and keeping by doing that. Once they get the mind to where the only language or the only thoughts that the monk is having is for this um, uh, little polyphrase, now we can shorten it even more down to we could call it even a mantra so that we're having one phrase on the in-breath and one phrase on the out-breath. Uh, the one that's very common in North Thailand is Budo. So you have boo on the in-breath and then do on the out-breath, but that long out-breath, we put a gap between the out-breath and the next in-breath. And while that is happening, the do is finished and the boo hasn't started yet, and there is your gap. Are you sort of holding your breath at that moment? Yes, and how long do you hold it until you need another breath? Remember, you're very, very relaxed and very, very oxygenated and very, very deep breathing, so you can actually hold your breath for two, three, four seconds, five seconds. No job, no problem. But as you uh, have the out-breath, and then the intention is, is that the in-breath then will be the startup of the mind for the next boo. And so you begin to practice the boo and the doe or other things like that. So you only have one little thought on the in-breath and one little thought on the out-breath. Like om on the in-breath uh, and nama shiva or om nam shivaye. Om on the in-breath 
and shivai on the outbreath, boo on the inbreath and doe on the outbreath. Or if you were raised in Oklahoma in the 1950s, perhaps a, um, a proper um, mantra would be on the inbreath coca and on the outbreath cola. <laughs> coca cola. Coca cola. And we just kind of stop and let it. So this is how the Buddha talks about putting some space between uh, the thoughts so that we begin to keep those connected thoughts and begin to still them out and make them more relaxed so that our thoughts are now uh, having great gaps between them. This is uh, the movement from the first jhana into the second jhana. So reading on now that we've got that, it says, furthermore, as the placing of mind and keeping it connected were stilled, he entered and remained in the second jhana, which has rapture and bliss born of, he says immersion, but is actually born of seclusion from the hindrances with internal clarity and confidence. So here's that word shraddha again, confidence. We know we can do this. And it's also in this state, the mind is quite unified. But we don't have to keep placing it on wholesome thoughts and keeping it there because we've almost built that up as a habit. So we don't have to do that anymore. Now uh, we have a wholesome thought with a gap. And then another wholesome thought later. Now, if this is happening with an ordinary mind, then his wholesome thought with a gap, the next thought that's going to come up is possibly unwholesome. So you can actually have thoughts that are uh, uh, wholesome followed by a gap followed by an unwholesome thought, but once that unwholesome thought is there, that's going to pull us out of the jhana. And the likelihood is us continuing right along with that unwholesome thought. But if we're sharp, then that cow herd can whack that cow and bring it back into first jhana. And then we can go back into the second jhana again, always in that state that we've got to get the mind where we can control it. And this is an important part that we can talk about later, and that is, is that this is an active, active meditation. This is not passive. This is not noting. A, uh, a noting practice would be walking into your kitchen, noting that the garbage needs to be taken out, but you don't take it out. That if anything, you'll begin to dig through the garbage, thinking that there may be something worth keeping here. All of us are in a way called pack rats. You've heard that, that expression, that we just don't throw stuff out that should be thrown out. And I've been in houses to where, my goodness, you couldn't hardly get through the house. <laughs> the hallways were just stacked with garbage so that you actually had to worm your way down their hall. A regular hall is easy to walk down, but in this house, you can't walk down that hall because it's full of garbage. So this is why in these states we have to clean things out so that we can see really what's going on. So the next sentence is, so now he's going to be looking at it and he distinguishes the phenomena in the second jhana one by one as they occur with internal confidence. 
and still that rapture and bliss. In fact, the rapture and the bliss, the really, really good feelings get really strong in the second jhana because we're not using any of our mind moments for thought. You could basically say then that all of our mind moment, thought moments, are actually experiencing this rapture and this bliss. And the fact that the mind is quiet, it's unified, and we still have <coughs> the functionings of the mind that the Buddha talks about in Paticca Samapada, and here they go, contact, feeling, perception, intention. In mind, enthusiasm, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. So it's the same list for the second jhana as it is for the first jhana, except for removing only one thing, the applied and sustained thought. Everything else is the same list. So by, by, by definition, if you have an unwholesome thought, does that mean that you're not in second jhana. Mm -mm. It means you're not even in first jhana. Go back up to that initial phrase that I said, quite secluded from unwholesome states is not having an unwholesome thought. Having one wholesome, unwholesome thought after five minutes, and then you catch that thought and throw it out, that's getting close to being quite secluded. Mm -hmm. And that will happen from time to time. And But the, the important point is when we see those unwholesome thoughts, we whack them like that cow herd whacks that cow. Don't go there. Don't <laughs> step on that child. Don't eat that carrot on that food stand. That's dangerous, okay? And so this is actually, though it's not in this sutra, the book is talking about these un secluded from unwholesome qualities is because the student can already see the dangers in these unwholesome qualities. That's part of the reason why Saraputta was able to do that in two weeks is because he was well disposed for this. Most of us have not figured out yet what's wholesome and unwholesome. <laughs> and that's why it takes so long. Once we really figure out what is really wholesome, then we can maintain that. And so we now we have in that second jhana, that internal confidence, that pity and the sukha and the samati mind, that unification of mind along with contact, feeling, perception, intention, mind. And then I want to point out this word enthusiasm. This is actually when we're really, really interested and this enthusiasm uh, has would be what we would call as the replacement for doubt. Enthusiasm could also be seen as curiosity. We're really into it. We're really interested in what's going on. A lot of enthusiasm here. Okay. That word decision there has to do with seizing your object. Just like in Anapanasati of uh, 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 the breath. We don't just watch the breath. We seize it. We grab hold of it. We make a decision about it. And that decision is this is going to be a long, deep in-breath. This is going to be a long, deep out-breath. That decision quality also has to say with the, this is a, um, an unwholesome thought. Out it goes. We have to make 
those choices. We actually have to. This is um, a way of talking about it is, is that Anapanasati, unlike Mahasi, is a um, Anapanasati is a game you play and you've got to have skin in the game. You've probably heard that phrase before, skin in the game. So if you're actually playing, um, let us say, a video game or an Internet video game, that uh, video game can be seen as uh, doing something. Let us say you're playing solitaire. You've got to click that card or move that card from here to there. But there's another way for that game, and that is to merely watch someone else play the game. They call it kibitzing when it's poker. Right? And the guy who is watching the game doesn't have much skin in the game. And because of that, he's not really paying that much attention to it. So it's like if you're just watching the breath, then you've got no skin in that game. And so it's very easy for the mind to wander away. But if you're actually seizing and moving that card in the game, now you're, it's an active game. And you keep playing it. Okay, so this is how uh, we want to manage the, um, the Anapanasati. Um, so let's go on a little bit. We have now, uh, at, after he's done that second jhana, he knew these phenomena as they arose, as they remain, and as they went away. So not only are we uh, noting these things as they occur, we also recognize their arisal and their passing away, that they, anything that comes to be is going to just flitter away. This is an important point that I think I would really like, in fact, that this uh, particular translation, he uses the word to flitter away. <laughs> it just, and it's gone. And that's how we begin to see things. Everything is a Nietzsche Vata Sankara. Everything is under flux. Sabe Sankara Anicca. Everything that comes to mind will pass away. Even perception flitters. Feelings flitter. Enthusiasm flitters. Energy flitters. It comes and we can see it and then it falls back down. As he meditated without attraction or repulsion for these phenomena, independent, unified, liberated, detached, his mind is free of limits. He understood there is an escape beyond. And by repeated practice, he knows for sure that there is an escape. So now, as we begin to work with the, uh, uh, in the second jhana, that the predominant feeling or the predominant thing that's going on is rapture. That's that also that enthusiasm uh, and that it's quite energetic, um, euphoria. But that euphoria also is actually kind of a lot of work. So as he lets this pity or this euphoria fade away, he, remain, he goes into the third jhana where he meditates with equanimity, mindful and aware, personally experienced the bliss, which means sukha is still there, of which the noble ones declare 
equanimous and mindful, one meditates in bliss. He distinguishes the phenomena of the third jhana one by one. Now we've also removed rapture or pity, and now we have the list starting with bliss and mindfulness and unification of mind, contact, feeling, perception, intention, mind, enthusiasm, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and intention. That's actually quite a long list of things for us to look at one by one. But again, they're all wholesome. Never does the unwholesome ever come back into this. And then we have this part that as he's watching this, he knows that these phenomena, as they arise, as they remain, as they pass away, he understood, so it seems that these phenomena, not having been come to be, and having come to be, they just flitter away. And he meditated without attraction or repulsion for these phenomena, independent, unified, liberated, detached, his mind free from them, as he understands there is an escape. There's a way out of this suffering. And he, by this repeated practice, he knows for sure it is. In fact, not only is there an escape, but that this is it. These states that he's moving through is, in fact, the escape. But he's talking about it in the sense that each time that we escape from something big, now we find something a little bit smaller that we can escape from until there's nothing left. And so now that we've gotten a long list of very, very wholesome things going and no unwholesome things, because let us say that we've got a list of about, what, 10, 12, 14 items, something like that in this list. How many unwholesome things are there to note? 10 bazillion? <laughs> okay, so now, furthermore, in giving up the pleasure and pain, and ending the former happiness, I don't know why you put in sadness here, because there's none, uh, no sadness in the, uh, the first jhana. He entered and remained in the fourth jhana with, uh, without any pleasures or pains. I guess we're talking about here is, is without any pleasures or pains is the fact that the body has become very, very unimportant that there are no sensations coming from the body and the pure equanimity and mindfulness. And then he distinguishes the mind, uh, the phenomenon of the fourth jhana. But here now, instead of starting with bliss in the third jhana, now we're starting with uh, uh, equanimity or um, the author here translate this as, as a neutral feeling. In fact, it's not neutral. What it is, is that it's a feeling that is not painful and it is not pleasurable. It's just knowledge that there is feeling. And uh, mentally unconcerned because now we're very, very um, uh, easygoing. We're watching and so we can see the mindfulness has gotten strong. The mind is really unified. But we still have contact, feeling, perception, intention, mind, enthusiasm, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. And all of this stuff is still going on, even in the fourth jhana. So you can see, in fact, that the fourth jhana is very, very, very close to the first jhana, with just a couple of pieces gone. Mm -hmm. 
which means then that this should not be a goal for a meditator. These are just natural progressions. That if there is a goal, the first goal is to get the hindrances out of the mind and getting the mind in state that's a pure state. And again, even in the fourth jhana, he is sharp, but he is not concentrated. Not the way that Western thought is about meditation is to concentrate the mind. We're not concentrating the mind here. We're unifying it. And while we're doing that, even in the fourth jhana, we still see things come and go. He knows this phenomenon as it arrives, as it remains, as it passes away. And he says, so it seems that these phenomena, not having been come to be, and having come to be, they flitter away. This statement here that we've seen several times, so it seems that this phenomena is actually the Buddha's use of what we have in English language as inductive logic that is so powerful in mathematics that if it does for one and it does for two, the likelihood it'll do for three. And if it does for one, two, and three, the likelihood is it'll do for four. This is the whole idea is the summation from one to n is inductive logic. If it will work on one, two, or three, then it'll work for n no matter how big n gets. So what he's saying here is so it seems that it's all phenomena. Not having been comes to be, and having come to be, they flitter away. Everything. That these phenomena and all phenomena, and he enters and he meditates without attraction or repulsion for these phenomena, independent, unified, liberated, and detached, free of the limits. He understands there is even more escape than this. And by repeated practice, he knows for sure there is. Furthermore, going totally beyond the perceptions of form. Now, what this means, perceptions of form, is is that in the fourth jhana, we loosen the boundaries of the body. The analogy is, is imagine that the meditator has covered himself with a white sheet shimmering white sheet so that the distinctions of where the arms and the feet are is kind of just a blob. And so the body is experienced as more just a blob and that that blob becomes almost uh, luminous. Now, uh, one thing that we can talk about here is that these higher states are part of fourth jhana. They are not distinct or separate jhanas. Some will talk about there's four, some will talk about there's five. Giving four plus the original four is are there eight jhanas or are there nine? In this particular sutta, they happen to be talk about five of them. But these five are nothing but aspects of the fourth jhana. It's almost like um, uh, that the fourth jhana is... Uh, <clears throat> taking the elevator to the top of a building. And once you get to the absolute top of it, now you can look in all the directions. While you're climbing the building, you can't see everything. But once you're on top of the building or on top of a mountain, now you can look in all four quarters. 
That's why these are not distinct or separate jhanas. They're just things you can do while you're in the fourth jhana. The first one he talks about then is what is referred to as spaciousness. And that I don't know why, I guess Bhikkhu Bodhi, but I'm not sure who did it, but they, they use the word infinite. But the word infinite and the term infinity did not exist in the time of the Buddha. In fact, the mathematics were not up to the level of even knowing about divide, division by zero, which is what uh, infinity really is. There is, in fact, no such thing as infinity it's just a useful mathematical tool. Okay, that's one place where they um, a lot of mathematicians will go uh, and philosophers will talk about is the universe mathematical or is the math in the mind of the human? This proves it right here. This one word in a Buddha Sutra of all things proves that in fact, uh, mathematics is a product of the human mind because there is nothing infinite anywhere. There is no infinity anywhere. All the grains of the sands of the earth are still numbered. That number may fluctuate, but it's not going to be uh, growing by 10 bazillion. Right? And if it did, it still wouldn't grow to infinity. Time is not infinite. We know the age of the universe. We know that it eventually will fade into a different state altogether. But we don't know what the deep, deep, deep dark future is. That deep, deep dark future would be what we would call eternalism. Mm. And a lot of people have the idea that the soul is eternal, that it will go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And even if it does, it's still not infinite. Nothing is infinite. There's no such thing. What we're actually talking about here, the word in the Pali has to do with the boundaries of the body become indistinct. Boundlessness. In other words, where do I stop and where does my environment begin? And when the mind is really sharp, that distinction is not so much there. You can say when the mind is ordinary, you can see skin and you can see not skin or the air and you say there's the boundary. But with this, we're beginning to look really at it in a really spiritual sense. In the sense that there is no boundary between the body and its environment. That we're just part of the space. But mm -hmm. even in this high state of mind, we still have all of these things. And so in this state where the, the body gets very, very loose, the boundaries become very hard to distinct. We can see this phenomenon of the perception of enthusiasm, or excuse me, uh, the, we see the perception of the dimensions of the infinite space. In other words, we begin to see this stuff. But we also recognize that the mind is still in samadhi, it's still unified, we've just taken off all of the feelings and all the thoughts. But the mind is still functioning completely. And because of that, it can see, and we can still see this contact, feeling, perceptions, intentions, enthusiasm, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. I think that they intentionally put it in the same order 
just to make sure that the reader could understand that we're just pulling one item off the list each time that we go up. And each time that we pull an item off the list, we still are left with the fact that everything arises and passes away. Everything is temporary. Anything that can come up will remain a while, and then it will flitter away again. And so he meditates without uh, attraction or repulsion of the phenomenon, independent, unified, liberated, detached. His mind is free from the limits. So this is basically pulling the limits off of the mind, and that's where this word infinity comes from, which is a bad translation. It's just that the limits are removed. Uh, And then he understands that there is an escape beyond, and by repeated practice, he knows for sure that this is the right way to go. This is when we're really getting confidence in the Buddha's path, that we know for absolute sure, without a doubt, that this stuff works. Okay, and so the next one is going to be that he's going to be uh, entering into the dimension of what they call here infinite consciousness. But again, we're not talking about consciousness doesn't grow. What we see is, is that the boundaries between basically between uh, the sense object and the ability to sense that object and the ability to perceive that object are distinct qualities that are not quite so distinct. There's fluidity in there. Where is the boundary between consciousness and perception? There really is no boundary between them. That's why you talk about infinite consciousness. No, it's just talking about the boundaries of consciousness are getting very, very loose. Why? Because we can see very, very clearly what we thought was consciousness is just consciousness. Now we can see, oh, it's very, very connected in that we can see these boundaries in there. And with that, we can see the unification of mind, contact, feeling, perception, intention. Even in these very high states, you can still observe your mindfulness, your equanimity, your attention, your perception, feelings, contact, all of this stuff is still there. That's an important part to look at. And even with that, everything that is still left arises, remains, passes away, everything is splittering. In other words, right now our our, uh, our mind is so sharp, our wisdom is so good that we can see that things arise and pass away, arising and passing away. An example of that would be, the, do, do you know that fluorescent lights turn on and off depending upon the frequency of the alternating current? To where incandescent lights, once they get hot, will continue to glow even while the electricity changes sides. But with the fluorescent, they only have the light going on when the, uh, the, when the current is going directly this way. When the current is alternating going back, fluorescent lights are turned off. You can see this with what we call a strobe. But in fact, in the old, old days, we would make sure that our uh, uh, vinyl disc turntables were turning at exactly the right speed because we would check it with the frequency 
of the uh, electricity with either a neon bulb, and then we found when uh, fluorescent lights became popular, we can do the same thing. We can see that strobe. You can put that fluorescent light on, and you can see those standing waves or the fact that they may be drifting. Okay. This is what we're talking about at this level of consciousness is that we're so fast that we can begin to see things arising and passing away and arising and passing away with every thought moment, which is about one th a tenth of a second. This is how we've gotten the mind up to about that speed. And we still know that there is even more escape because we're still removing things. Now, the next point that I would like to make is, is that there are various ways of looking at these things and that it appears that the way that some people practice, that nothingness does not come next, that nothingness is the last item on the list. But somehow in this sutta, nothingness has gotten third on the list. Okay, so in order to talk about, uh, or uh, to follow on with what I'm talking about, let's go down to the bottom. Uh, uh, that... How far that was. Ah, now we go into, and he entered and remained with mindfulness. Uh, no, furthermore, going totally beyond the dimensions of neither perception nor non-perception, he enters in and remains in the succession of perceptions and feelings. Okay, this is the last item on the list, he says, is uh, succession of perception and feeling. This is not in other suttas. This is the fifth item on the list. And we can also see that perception and feelings are closely connected together without being able to perceive and make sense of something. That's not going to contact us, which is not going to give us any feelings. So there's even more stuff that's beyond this. So I'm not sure why that they put this on the last of the list, but it says that, and he emerged from that attainment with mindfulness. Then he contemplated the phenomena that, atta uh, that attained that had passed away, ceased, and uh, perished. What this means now is, is that when that when the mind is really, really sharp, we don't see things as they occur. We can reflect upon them as they pass away. Imagine that, in fact, that you're standing aside of the, uh, the road and a Ferrari at very, very high speed goes zoom and it's gone. All we're left with is the recollection that it passed and gone. We didn't see it coming. All we saw that it's gone. Okay. This is when, the, uh, at that level, this is where we are, is to recognize that this stuff is just, is gone. And that we have to emerge from that into a lesser uh, high jhana state in order to be able to see it. Because while it's happening, we can't see it can only see it as it's passed away. Once we get the mind really, really fast like this, then we can say that, okay, now I've come to the end of this. I know what's going on. I know really for sure how the mind operates and that there is nothing left beyond that. 
Okay. So with what we're really pointing at here is is that one can do all of this stuff in first jhana. These higher jhanas are not really necessary because all we need to do is to get into that first jhana and to do this list of things. And we already have that unification of mind. And in first jhana, we're already in sukha, which means we're already free from suffering. All that we can do from these higher jhanas is just build confidence and just to make sure. Just to make sure this is it. This is the escape. There's nothing beyond this. Okay. So now that we've talked about uh, cessation or perception and feelings, we can go back and look at this uh, issue about nothingness because eventually uh, when we eliminate cessation uh, uh, perception, we eliminate feelings, there's nothing left but consciousness and all we then have is the consciousness of nothing. That's all that's left is nothing. That's why I would say that somehow or another these got taken out of order. Also, this is one of the places where it points out that if you want to count it that way, this this sutta has nine jhanas. Actually, it still has four. They label them, they list them, numbered one, two, three, four, period. And these are the only states of the fourth jhana. And the fourth jhana is much easier to get from the third jhana than the third jhana was to get to the second jhana. And the second jhana was a whole lot of work to get into the second jhana from the first jhana. But almost all of the effort that was needed to get into the first jhana was those two words quite secluded. Mm -hmm. That's the job. That's the whole effort. You could say that for that fortnight, Terry Pooch has spent 13 days getting quite secluded. And all the rest of stuff could happen all at once, or let us say over a short period of time. But all of this can be done quite quickly once the mind is fit for work. So, in the end, this, this Kuta is really just describing all the different jhanic levels and attainments, but it's not they're really... Not a, they're not attainments. Please, don't use that word. <laughs> what's the better... What's the better way? The jhanic... Uh, Taking out the trash. We're not gain, We're not attaining or gaining anything. We're removing. We're removing. It, it, the whole sutra is all about that. Is removing one thing after another, after another, after another, until there's nothing left. There's nothing to attain here. <laughs> there's so, nothing positive in here. Everything is via negative. So it, it does have elements of Vipassana in it, though, right? Because the thing is Vipassana. There's nothing here but Vipassana. So does he and he makes sure of it. The Vipassana is, and he knew these phenomena as they arose, as they remained, and as they passed away. He understood. So it seems that these phenomena, not having been, come to be, and having come to be, they flitter away. That's Vipassana. 
to see these things happen over and over again repetitively as opposed to the fact that they're just there all the time. They're not there all the time. They arise and pass away and arise and pass away. That doesn't mean that they're not useful, just like that fluorescent light gives us plenty of light and is much more efficient than incandescent bulbs. But the light still arises and passes away and arises and passes away. Are you quick enough to see all that stuff happening, arising and passing away? So if, if you can say, okay, if there's an attainment, the attainment is how fast and how strong is the mind? Uh, the sutra seems to culminate in, you know, the formless realm jhanas, but it, it doesn't culminate in, what, the unconditioned or... Uh, or uh, nirvana or something like that. Well, actually, nirvana, the definition of nirvana is right from the very beginning. Quite secluded starts nirvana. And each one of these wholesome factors, one by one, is they're removed, removes more tension. More tension is removed and we can become more relaxed or in the way that they talk about it in the suttas, more tranquil. The more tranquil, the more stable we become, the faster we can see. It's almost like this. Imagine that in, uh, uh, it has to do with uh, film photography and the speed of the film. Old, old film, when they first started doing it, the film was in such low quality that you had to have the camera lens open for a long time to get a good exposure. While that exposure was happening, if that camera was moving, if it wasn't still on a tripod, then the, the shakiness of the camera will interfere with the picture, right? So that the picture becomes blurry. That's how we live our lives. We live a, our whole lives seeing things in a blur. But by being able to get the mind sharp and focused and also completely wholesome, we could begin to see that it's not a blur. It's an up and a down and an up and a down and an up and a down and an up and a down. And, and that's where we really understand the Nietzsche. And that's why we can, because we understand that everything is rotting away. Everything is rotting and that's okay that's the part that's really hard for us to get because we remember we started uh, before we put the call on about uh, 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 it all started with a server going down and now everything is just going downhill right <laughs> the answer is when I'm going to just forget about it yeah this this uh, uh, network that I've got here is about 10 years old and it's gotten really old and it's falling apart <laughs> <laughs> And maybe the right thing to do is to just let it fall apart. Because that's his natural tendency, and I don't need it anyway. So, um, this does, is the, go ahead. Oh, does Buddha Dasa uh, have, uh, you know, does he talk about stream entry and like the, you know, uh, the stream enterer and then, you know, 
second path, third path, fourth path? Is that a part of, of his understanding of teaching? First off, Thicke Buddha Dasa does generally talk about it in the sense of the way that it's spoken of in the Pali or in the suttas. There is no such thing as first path, second path, third path, and fourth path. There is only the path. And that normally refers to as the Eightfold Noble Path, which you have to be practicing throughout this. In fact, you can see the Eightfold Noble Path interspersed right inside of this. Unification of mind is on the Eightfold Noble Path. Uh, uh, Energy is actually right effort. Mindfulness. Uh, Attention, that's the investigation. So basically, that's all we're doing here is just going over the Eightfold Noble Path uh, over and over again as the mind gets sharper and quicker and our insight gets deeper. So there's no first, second, third, fourth path. But let me go back and answer the question of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. He doesn't talk about it in public, but if you ask him privately, he can talk about it. But he doesn't mention Sotapan or uh, Arahat or any of that kind of stuff in public. Why? Because it gets the mind into grasping and clinging after things they don't have. Why Mm. should we talk about stuff that people don't have? Mm. Okay, then in fact, um, you could put um, the word stream entry and pack it all into one word or two, and that would be enthusiasm. Enthusiasm uh, for the path, or the other word would be uh, uh, dedication to the path. When you understand what sotapan is, is that when the three layers of doubt are finished so that you know for sure what the path is. That's that there is an escape. This is the path to the escape. And I can do this path to the escape. That's the sotapan. That is that complete eradication of doubt Mm. about what is and what is not the path. And we know uh, with knowledge what work there is to do which is to make sure that the mind is free from hindrances. And then we have uh, to discover what is a hindrance and what is not. That uh, an example of that would be conceit. Conceit is extraordinarily difficult for the individual himself to see, but all of his friends can see it. And so if you get into competition with someone, um, how to say it? Let us say that someone doesn't like you and is making sure that you know that he doesn't like you. But ordinarily, you would be friends and you have no clue as to why he doesn't like you. And so you begin to do things to try to, one, figure out why he doesn't like you and try to get him to like you. That sounds logical, doesn't it? Mm. Nope. That's conceit. (laughs) And that's a hard one to understand, that that's conceit. Wanting someone who already makes sure that you know that he doesn't like you, 
wanting him to change to get you to be okay in his eyes is conceit. And so some of this stuff is really, really hard to see. But once we've been able to see it, and we know for sure that that's conceit, then I can see the dangers in it, and then I can find the escape. That's really interesting that they keep talking about the word escape. That's what this is all about. An attainment would be to attain your own uh, prison cell. We're not going to attain anything. We're going to escape from the stuff that we've already attained. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's a better uh, way to think of it. Mm -hmm. escape. That's right. The whole teaching of the Buddha is how to escape. This sutta here is littered with that word escape. But you also know that he has other sutras where he talks about the gratification, the dangers, and the escape. That so long as we only see the gratification of it, we've attained that. But once we see the dangers in it, we don't want to attain it anymore. Now we want to escape from it. And so part of the job of a meditation teacher is to teach the students what to look for so that they can see the danger, they can see the dukkha, they can see the first noble truth. That's exactly what Sariputta did. Quite secluded from unwholesome states meant that he knew the first noble truth already. He started off that way, probably with instructions of, from the Buddha that only lasted 10 or 20 minutes or whatever, and he was all ready to go <clears throat> because of his prior work on it. Oh, I was going to ask this. Uh, I just remembered. So, um, so when you're in the first, second, third, fourth jhana, you you can still experience. Um, right, uh, so because dukkha, uh, you know, unsatisfactoriness is present. Constantly, right? Isn't it? So it's mm -hmm. not unwholesome to notice dukkha. Actually, that... it's wholesome to note it, and it's unwholesome to not note it. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> to note it and to note the cause of it. Always the bottom of the cause of the dukkha is going to be ignorance. And this, uh, this whole sutta is all about Sariputta coming out of his ignorance and gaining that confidence that he knows that there is an escape. Hmm. He's got it. And so at the end of this sutta, it says, and if there is anyone for whom it may be rightly said that they have attained mastery and perfection in noble ethics, in... Uh, I guess jhana here is immersion, wisdom and freedom, it's Sariputta. So the Buddha is really honking uh, Sariputta's horn here. And, and uh, the, the major work that Sariputta had to do only took a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, 
that means that if we are meditators meditating for 20 or 30 years and have not gotten completely into first john and we're not practicing correctly that first john is the whole deal once we get into first john these other states will almost happen one by one as they occur in the sense that you can be in first john and then you notice that there is no applied and sustained thought that you're not actually in first you're in the second jhana and then you notice that the enthusiasm or the euphoria is gone leaving you in a state of complete uh, happiness and bliss of the third jhana then you know okay this is the third jhana because we are in fact moving up by removing things So this is a, uh, the thought of it. Uh, another kind of analogy would be uh, um, a hot air balloon. You know, like uh, uh, around the world in 80 days kind of hot balloon. All right. Getting the balloon together, getting it all stitched with a basket and the heaters and all of that kind of stuff would then be the first jhana. And now all we have to do is just cut the rather the ropes because the hot air is there and it wants to fly. And all we have to do is just cut one rope, cut another rope, cut another rope, cut another rope, and now we just there's the escape. And so that's another way of looking at it. Is is that it's it's an escape and the major job is to get that first jhana. That's the one that's the most work. And that when we do have that first jhana, it is Vipassana and it is Samatha. Mm -hmm. And that Samatha without jhana is very weak and may take years because all you're observing is hindrances. And if you are only observing hindrances and not removing them, then you're going to stay in that access concentration and you're not going to go anywhere because you don't have the peace and the quiet and the comfort of uh, the eradication of these hindrances. And so the major, major, major work we have to do is to keep those cows from eating and stepping on the kids while it's going down the path. That's the major job that we got to do is to whack those thoughts, get them in line, making sure that those doggies are in line and, and rolling, rolling, rolling. So, the song Rawhide comes up. <laughs> and that's our job. Keep those doggies rolling. Don't let them stop and, and uh, 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 lollygag or whatever. We've got to take, there's an action here that we've got to do. Let's keep those thoughts wholesome. That's the major job. Once we have the thoughts wholesome, now we can begin to remove those thoughts and the wonderful, marvelous feelings that come with them until we come to a complete state of relaxation. And like I said, every stage along the way is just another step of Nibbana. Ordinary mind is hot. Getting the mind where one wholesome thought after another after another wholesome thought is very relaxing, very cooling, very peaceful, very Nibbana-like. And then coming down to having no thoughts left except uh, the thoughts of how we're feeling, 
but that feeling is euphoria, that's even more tranquil. But when we let go of the euphoria and have nothing but sukha, that's even more peaceful. And when we give up the sukha and get into just basic equanimity to where everything is just so easy, that's even more relaxation. That's even more tranquil. More nibbana. Okay, so the attainment of nibbana, no attainment at all, it's giving up the heat, turning the heat off. And then things cool down. All right, so do you have any other questions? I think that we fairly covered this sutta well enough that uh, any details that we didn't was because we glossed over a couple of the uh, 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 things to do in the uh, fourth jhana. But they're always the same. It's a unification of mind, contact, feeling, perception, intention, mind, enthusiasm, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. These are the things that are worthy paying attention to at whatever level we're at. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the, the rawhide analogy. Uh, and I, I think I, I'm going to add a new phrase to my meditative repertoire, you know, which is, let's cut them up, move them out. Yeah, that's exactly right. That, that's <laughs> Head them up, move them out. Yeah, I like uh, it. That's that's gathering those thing, those thoughts together, wholesome, one after another after another. Move them along. Let's get these doggies moving. Uh, only wholesome thoughts. Get them. Uh, don't let them stop and uh, <laughs> eat the uh, uh, the vegetables on the food stand. That's very excellent point. Yes. All right. Thank you very much. This has been delightful. I really enjoyed this conversation, Alan. Oh, I have too. It was really, really, uh, really insightful. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. We'll see you again soon. Okay. Bye now.